Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. If you haven't heard, there are millions of people today who believe the Earth is only about 6,000 years old. And about 4,000 years ago, there was a worldwide flood that destroyed all life on land, except for a few people and two of every animal that survived in an ark. The basis of this theory comes from many who say we ought to take a literal or plain reading of the Bible, the holy book of Christianity. The rationale behind this young earth view is that they are just taking the plain reading of the text and that Christians who believe the earth is old have to misconstrue or reinterpret passages to make the Bible fit with an ancient earth and the theory of evolution. But what many young earth creationists don't realize is that there are several passages within the Bible itself that create problems for the young earth theory. Meaning if we took the plain reading of the text in many places, it would actually contradict the view that the earth and the universe are only about 6,000 years old. These are the top 10 biblical passages that create problems for the young earth theory. Number 10, Genesis 17, 17. Genesis recounts the story of Abraham and Sarah, who were old in age and had no children of their own. God appears to Abraham and says he will have a son in his old age. And then in Genesis 17, it reads, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? So Abraham thinks it's biologically impossible for someone past the age of 100 to have a child. But this seems to contradict the ages of his ancestors, also known as the early patriarchs, who were supposed to live for hundreds of years and have children in their old ages. According to the Masoretic dates, many of Abraham's ancestors were supposed to be alive when God made this promise to Abraham in his 100th year, and his ancestor Eber supposedly outlived him. So shouldn't Abraham's reply to God have been that many people alive are having children in their old ages? So having a child at the age of 100 is perfectly normal. More importantly is the fact that based on what Genesis 12 says, Abraham's own father Terah would have had to have fathered Abraham at his own age of 130. So shouldn't Abraham's reply to God have been that having a child past the age of 100 is perfectly normal? After all, his own father had him when he was 130. The whole episode in Genesis 17 implies Abraham didn't know of anyone, his own father included, who had a child past the age of 100. And this would imply that when Genesis assigns high ages to the patriarchs, it is probably not their literal ages, but symbolic numbers for theological messaging. And that would mean Genesis doesn't give us a literal chronology back to the creation of Adam, damaging the young earth creationist view that the Bible documents through the ages of the patriarchs that the earth is only 6,000 years old. For a better understanding of the symbolic view of the ages of the patriarchs, see our video on Genesis 5. Number 9, Genesis 8. A common view among young earth believers is the idea that the earth 
was covered in a global flood about 4,000 years ago. When Genesis records that God flooded the earth, it should be understood as literally the entire globe because it says the waters covered the face of the whole earth. But there is a problem for this view within Genesis 8. Verses 4 and 5 say the ark came the rest in the mountains of Ararat or Uratu, and the tops of the mountains could be seen at this point. However, later in the chapter, Noah releases a dove and it returns to him because the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. But didn't verse 5 say the tops of the mountains were seen? So verse 9 cannot mean the waters were literally covering the whole earth implying the entire flood account might be hyperbolic in its description of the flood, and this would mean it was not literally covering the entire globe, but just a regional area. This is also supported by verse 13, where it says the waters dried from the earth. But this obviously cannot literally mean the entire globe, since most of the surface of the earth is still covered by water. So it appears the flood account is describing the flood hyperbolically it doesn't necessarily teach the entire globe was covered. Number 8, Genesis 2.24 Young Earth creationists are often proud of the fact, and almost go so far as to brag, that they just take the plain reading of scripture and don't have to reinterpret anything. In my debate with Kent Hoven, I asked if he takes all of Genesis 1 and 2 literally, and he replied, I have a question for Kent on Genesis 2. Do you take the entire chapter of Genesis 2 literally? Absolutely. But this is actually impossible because Genesis 2.24 cannot be understood literally. After Adam is introduced to Eve, it reads, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Since married couples are not sewn together, this obviously cannot be understood as literal. Some young earth believers try to get around this by saying it's a reference to procreation in the act of making children. But that would mean they interpret the phrase becoming one flesh metaphorically to mean having offspring, since the text does not literally say to make children. Verse 24 is obviously metaphorical language, but that means the text of Genesis 1 and 2 could also be using other metaphors and was not meant to be entirely literal. Number 7. Genesis 3.22 Genesis 3 recounts the fall of Adam and Eve in the exile from the Garden of Eden. Young Earth creationists believe before this there was no death because God made everything perfect. So Adam and Eve would have to have been created immortal and the fall resulted in their bodies being made mortal and consequently death came as a result. However, Genesis 3 never says their bodies were changed or transformed to be mortal. God curses the ground, but never places any curse on their bodies. In fact, all he does is bar them from the tree of life. Verse 22 reads, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. The implication numerous scholars have pointed out is Adam and Eve were already mortal and the only way they obtained immortality in the garden was eating continuously from the tree of life. To make them mortal again, all God had to do was prevent access to this sacred tree. But that means humans were already mortal before the fall 
and were only granted immortality through a special fruit, not because they were created with immortal bodies. This is also supported by the fact that Adam is called dust, which is an idiom in the Bible to denote that one is mortal. In Genesis, it might just be metaphorical language to denote that he was a mortal human, meaning Adam was mortal before the fall, which implies that death was a possibility before sin entered. Number 6. Genesis 2-4 Young Earth creationists often argue that Genesis 2 is a recap of what takes place on day 6 within Genesis 1, when God made humans. But Genesis 2-4 poses a problem for suggesting this chapter is a recap. The verse begins with, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is what scholars call a toledoth, and it is used throughout Genesis, almost like chapter markers for the ancient audience. However, when this phrase is used, it always introduces what comes after the person or the generations that follow him. It is never used to denote a recap of something that happened prior to this. Biblical scholar John Walton notes that the phrase in Genesis 2 is probably teaching the same idea, and that what takes place in Genesis 2 is meant to be a sequel, not a recap of what happens in Genesis 1. After God establishes the cosmos, he then hones in on one region on the earth to create a garden environment. But this would mean what is commonly viewed as the creation of the first man in Genesis 2 is not actually the creation of the first man. Since in the prequel to Genesis 2, God elects all humans to be his image, and this would take place before Genesis 2 and before Adam is believed to have been created from dust. Scholars like Michael Heiser note Genesis 1 speaks of encompassing all of humanity, not just one man or one couple, implying when God made man in his image, it was meant to include all humans, wherever they were existing at that time. Then Genesis 2 picks up after this with the creation or election of two specific individuals to act as priests in the Garden of Eden. So because of the Toledoth in Genesis 2, the implication is Adam came after when all humanity was made in the image of God and therefore was not the first human. Number 5. Jeremiah 4, 23-26 Young Earth creationists often assert that Genesis 1 cannot be read to mean anything other than a literal six-day creation of the cosmos. When theistic evolutionists interpret it to mean something else, they are reading that into the text. But it seems the prophet Jeremiah used very similar language from Genesis 1 to metaphorically describe the fallen northern kingdom of Israel. In Jeremiah 4, the prophet is warning Judah that they will be desolated like the northern kingdom if they do not repent and in doing so, he described what happened in northern Israel by heavily borrowing from Genesis 1. He says northern Israel is now formless and void. There is no light, no man, no birds of the air, and no vegetation. Even the very conservative scholar John MacArthur acknowledges the language was taken from Genesis 1 and is used in reverse to speak of what happened in northern Israel. But this language does not mean the fabric of space-time opened up and sucked out the land of the Northern Kingdom. The sun was still literally shining on the region. There were still humans, 
and there is no reason to believe birds refused to fly over the area or that no plants grew. Jeremiah is simply using this language to metaphorically say the northern kingdom no longer functions properly. But if the same language is used in reverse in Genesis 1, that implies all it is saying is God took a disordered cosmos and made it function properly for human civilizations to begin. Thus, within the scriptures itself, the implication is the language of Genesis 1 does not mean literal material creation and therefore does not necessarily refer to a literal six-day creation. Number 4. Genesis 1, 14-19 The most popular objection used against young earth creationism is the fact that nights and days exist before the sun, which is created on day 4. Days and nights cannot exist without the earth rotating and moving around the sun. Young earth believers often reply by suggesting maybe there was another light source, or they will argue that God made the light on day one and then gathered it together into the sun on day four. But this seems unlikely since Genesis 1 talks about the sun and the moon being created together as lights, and the composition of the moon is not the same as the sun. You cannot gather light together to make the moon. It only reflects light from the sun. Also, you just cannot separate the sun into pieces and have the same resulting chemistry necessary to provide sunlight for plants, supposedly created on day three. This whole response from young earth creationists is simply contrived and ad hoc. A more likely explanation is the sun and moon are just elected to serve as signs for seasons and for days and years, instead of being materially created. And this is what Genesis 1 is actually saying. Number 3. Genesis 1.28 As noted before, young earth believers say before the fall, the earth was blissful and perfect with no death or suffering. But Genesis 1.28 suggests the opposite was true. Humanity is told to subdue the earth and have dominion over all animals. In Hebrew, these words are extremely harsh. The first word is used of war conquest and enslavement. The second word refers to ruling harshly over someone, or oppression. So God is telling humans to make a warlike conquest on the earth because it needs subdued, implying the earth wasn't perfect and humanity was elected to transform the earth into a better place. But to do that meant tackling the harsh environments forcefully. The scholar Joshua John Van E notes the use of the second word for ruling over the animals seems to suggest humans had the right to use animals for any purpose, like food and clothing, implying they already had the right to kill and eat animals. But this means the command from God implies the earth was not a perfect, blissful creation. Instead, this verse implies the earth was chaotic and needed order brought to it. Also, humans seem to be given the right to kill animals, implying death was already in existence. Number 2. Barah Number two is not so much a passage, but the use of a Hebrew word. Many young earth creationists believe this word refers to God creating out of nothing, and it is used frequently throughout Genesis 1. But looking at how the word is used outside of Genesis 1 implies bara doesn't necessarily mean creation out of nothing, and might not even refer to material creation at all. John Walton has done a full semantic analysis on the word, 
and he points out the word never necessarily means creation out of nothing, and there are several times it cannot mean that. In Psalm 51, the author uses Barah to ask God to make a new clean heart within him. This obviously doesn't refer to the creation of a new material heart out of nothing. In Isaiah 65, it refers to electing Jerusalem to be a place of joy. In Isaiah 43, it refers to creating the nation of Israel, which came about over time and through natural processes. In Ezekiel 21, it refers to making a sign. It is even used to refer to David not eating food. There are times it could refer to material creation out of nothing, but it never necessarily does and there are clear examples where Barah cannot refer to material creation. So there is no reason to assume that that is the meaning in Genesis 1, especially given the previous problems that we have gone over. Kenneth Matthews notes Barah more likely refers to bringing about activity rather than material manufacturing, implying Genesis 1 is not about material creation. Before we get to number one, Remember to subscribe and hit the notification bell so you are updated when new videos are coming out. We have several videos on archaeological evidence for the life of Abraham to the Exodus coming out over the next few months, so hit the bell and stay updated to know when these videos are published. And now finally, number 1, Genesis 1, verse 1. This may come as a shock to you, but the very first verse of the Bible can create difficulties for young earth models. The reason is, over the past few decades, scholars have noted the first verse lacks a definite article in Hebrew, so the way we translate it may not be accurate. Instead, scholars like John Salhammer and Robert Holmstead have argued it would make more sense to translate it as, when God began to create the heavens and the earth. What this would mean is verse 1 is no longer a complete sentence but what we would call a dependent clause in an incomplete sentence. So this would mean verse 1 is dependent on the following clause, which is in verse 2. So Genesis is really saying, when God began to bara the heavens and the earth, the earth was formless and void. In other words, when God started baraing the heavens and the earth, it was already there as formless and void. So many scholars note this implies Genesis 1 is not about bringing the universe and the earth into existence for the first time, but is about God transforming the earth from a chaotic state into an ordered state. If the Hebraic form of verse 1 and 2 implies the earth was already there existing before the creation week, then the text supports an extended period of time prior to this and is not actually stating the absolute beginning point of our universe. Now I know some of these points might come as a shock to you, but we are not arguing this creates problems for the biblical worldview, just for young earth models that claim to be based on biblical texts. Given all of these points, the biblical scriptures don't seem to support many of the claims of young earth creationists. Luckily on this channel, we have a 15 part video series, which gives a more logical explanation of what the opening chapters of Genesis are claiming with a focus on trying to understand these chapters within their ancient cultural context. So for more on Genesis, please see this playlist. But for now, as we have argued, it is clear a plain reading of Genesis does not necessarily support a 6,000-year-old Earth, 
And there are many issues that arise when proponents of this idea say we should just take the biblical text literally. Thanks for watching. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.